0: Hey, everybody, it's Drew from Sleep With Me, and believe it or not, I'm live here uh, from Golden Gate Park, recorded live, uh, and I've got a little announcement. We're teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you two exclusive episodes. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlists of clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. Each playlist has its own topic or theme. You could try out the Music Dakota playlist with clips all about unpacking and analyzing music, uh, or Slice of Life, which is all about the crazy or incredible things that happen to everyday people. Also, Spoke has fun, exclusive content from Farrell. And that's why I'm here live at Golden Gate Park. I just concluded uh, recording one of these episodes that's only going to be available exclusively on Spoke. I'm lying here in the grass. Uh, You definitely do not want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of Sleep With Me's exclusive Spoke episodes. You can find them all at Spoke.com. Slash sleep with me. That's spoke.com slash sleep with me. Check it out. uh, And I'll see you in Golden Gate Park at Stowe Lake. Bye.
1: Guys, I want to tell you about a great sponsor I have. Bompus. They're premium high performance athletic socks. And they're so comfortable. You're never going to want to take them off. And because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters for every pair of socks purchased, Bompas donates one pair of those to those in need. Almost one million pairs donated to date. 15% off The first purchase of four or more socks, plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. you for joining me today. Uh, if you like my theme music there, that is a band called Les Blanks. Go to their website, lesblanks.com, check them out. If you haven't listened to the show before, it is just kind of what the title there says. It's a conversation with me, Matt Dwyer. It's uh, kind of a, more of a freewheeling type of thing opposed to a uh, question and answer conversation interview thing. It is uh, it is an exploration of an individual with my curiosities about them and the world they inhabit. I think that was well put, don't you? Today, 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 <laughs> today, everybody. Uh, I just created a new word. It's today, which is today in Tahiti. Uh, my guest today is Heidi Butzin, and she is a nationally best selling author. Uh, and we have, uh, she wrote a book about um, shopping locally and how that is. Uh, it's sort of her personal mission to get more people to shop locally because it helps the economy and and it's been a common that is a common theme on uh my show of how you know you vote with your dollar and all that stuff and she so she we explore the world of uh of doing that and how to make sure you're doing that properly it's real informative real good I'm really enjoying that uh, you're gonna really enjoy the conversation I apologize if my brain is a little jumbled in this intro it's not in the interview though but I'm just little uh, sleep deprived as i do this and stuffy which is a common theme everybody and i promise you not a cocaine addict just a lot of allergies mommy smoked and drank during pregnancy but when she did it she'd bought all of her booze and cigarettes locally because she knew how to shop locally <laughs> so she she ruined my 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 breathing things locally it's very so at least she was conscious of that uh I guess that's all I got for this intro today. Let's just get into this conversation and enjoy it. Peace do. Sometimes when I was, uh, you know, reading about you and whatnot, I was like, "This dame might be too fancy for my show." Because you're, uh, you're oh, be- wow. best- a <laughs> best-selling author, a wine aficionado, and uh, a shop well, lo- local. Well, you know,
2: if, if you have an opportunity to follow your passions, then you should try to do it. Um, it's it's not always easy, of course. Um, you know, going into business for yourself, but you know, it all kind of ties into the story. And why, you know, it sort of brought me here to writing the book and, and getting behind local businesses, because it's, it's tough being a, an entrepreneur today. So
1: would, um, would you say it's more difficult these days than, say, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years ago?
2: Wow, that's tough, because I think that, I mean, it all depends on the individual, of course, and their drive. I, I think that um, perhaps a few, more year, a few years ago, it may, may have been a little bit easier to get things like funding Um, which helped launch a lot of businesses. But I think there are so many resources at our fingertips today that, you know, even, you know, young teens are starting businesses today. So, you know, whether it's – I think the challenges are always going to be there inherently if you really want to run an actual, legit, non-hobbyist business. Um, no matter when, it, when, what the economic situation is. But I do think that, you know, there's certainly some pros and cons from a few years ago to today. You know, we didn't have quite as many resources, so sort of plug and play, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Although I think that, you know, getting the funding, other than crowdfunding or Kickstarter and things like that, you know, maybe those dollars came a little bit easy, per, easier perhaps because there was more to go around and people were a little more open to maybe investing maybe more so than they are today just
1: because of the economic situation. I guess, yeah, I guess maybe starting uh, internet uh, business, like, you know, I guess you could technically, if you are making and selling stuff on Etsy, that's sort of you're doing your own business, right?
2: right? Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) I'm just, I'm amazed. I'm sorry? You still
2: you still figure out how to make it, and how to ship it, and how to get it to your customers and get paid. So <laughs> it's a business.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm just amazing. Like you said, teens are starting their own business. I, I, uh, I, As a teen, I couldn't even think of doing something. I can't even think about doing something like that. In, oh, God, in, no. Maybe
2: through high school. Get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> what? No. what
1: attracted you to like uh, business? Like, w- w- What made you want to go and be a business person?
2: You know, it's really funny because I I didn't really know what business I wanted to get into. I just knew I wanted to be in the business world. And I thought, you know, I want to be that powerful uh, executive. This is, you know, back when I was, you know, in high school maybe or junior high, you know, a teenager thinking, you know, I want to be that powerful business executive, that that female that, that sort of runs the place, you know. And I don't know that I had a bunch of examples in my life to sort of emulate that model, but I knew we wanted to be successful and, and be in the business world. Now, to be fair, as my family likes to remind me often enough, You know, I, I watched Mr. Rogers growing up, and there was one episode where he went to a, 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 a like a shoe store, and they were repairing shoes. And, of course, the girl loved her shoes, so I said, I want to go be a shoe repair man. And my aunt quickly corrected me and said, you are going to be a shoe repair person, honey. <laughs> <laughs> now I didn't pursue that career at all, but you know, I mean, a, a lot of kids say that, you know, they want to be an astronaut or whatever, but you know, shoe repair person's kind of unusual. Maybe that's my, my appeal to, to, you know, the retail side of things and how I'm always fascinated by successful retail businesses. I've never run one myself, um, you know, with the brick and mortar and, and, uh, you know bringing people in to my storefront. But, uh, yeah, I just think it's kind of funny. To, business was really where my heart was, but you know, of course, as a kid, you get sort of sidetracked with other things you want to do. Who yeah. you knows, shoes? Maybe I'll have a future business in shoes down the road. I just don't know it yet.
1: Well, like Daniel Day-Lewis quit acting for a while and became a cobbler. <laughs> it was like he won Oscars, and then he's like, "I'm going to go make shoes." And it's like, "All right."
2: Yeah. Why not? You know, it's sort of instant gratification. You sell it, people are happy. They're not happy, and you move on. So <laughs> yeah,
1: this is sort of an old school romanticism about something like that. And I, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so did you? And did you go like down the proper business road? Like you went, I'm going to business school type of thing.
2: Well, I I did, but I, I didn't sort of. I wanted to get through high school. I mean, high school is usually not a pleasant experience, I think, for most people I talk to, but (laughs) I wanted to go to college, you know? That was my goal. Get me out of here. I need to start making money. I need to start working. And and so after high school, I put myself through, you know, some of the community college courses. Then I went to Cal State and got my um, degree in public relations. And then I went to UCLA and got my executive MBA. Um, but that was all while I was working the whole time. So what was great was, in my my opinion, I think that, you know, I valued the education that I got because, first of all, of course, I was paying for it, but also because I was working. So what I was learning at my job complemented sort of what I was doing um, in getting my degree, my undergrad, and certainly with the executive MBA. So so working at the same time, I think, helped sort of Scratch both sides of the brain so that you know you were sort of well-rounded in your learning. You weren't just learning things out of a textbook. So um, I didn't go straight through college, you know, like some people do, to get their master's degree and then enter the business world. I kind of tried to do it at the same time.
1: Now, did you did you initially want to uh, just jump into uh, like work for another business because because you uh, I mean you eventually wrote your. Uh, a book, uh, how to shop local and and more like independent business oriented. Did you try to enter that world and were like this this world is weird and gross? Or <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, well, I I oh I started off um, kind of working through the you know in the mailroom like people do. They start in the mailroom and 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 you know I stuck with the, my first my first real job out of high school. I was there for about five years. It was a non-profit and it really exposed me to major global corporations and, and, you know, companies that are building projects, you know, construction projects or refineries or, or universities or laboratories across the world. And so that first job actually exposed me to that corporate side. And it also exposed me to, you know, the smaller businesses who actually work very closely with those owner companies Things happen in the world, so you know that was my first entree to you know real world businesses, and um, you know that was appealing. And um, however, the the nonprofit—I mean, when you're working for a nonprofit, you're doing pretty much everything you need to do to pick up and make the thing fly with not a lot of money. So I think that's sort of what set the foundation for me a little bit. And you know, I, I think that I've realized through all of this that my heart really is with the small business. Um, even though I've been exposed, I've, I've worked for a major corporation, um, they, they acquired a company that I ran for 12 years, um, you know, which is great, but, you know, I, I got the experience and I know that I much rather prefer helping the small business and, and, and going the entrepreneur route uh, because of, you know, obviously the freedoms it has, there's also stresses attached to it as well, but, you know, I, I've seen the ugly side of having to make the decision personally, of you know who would be on the next round of of layoffs uh when corporations have to cut back for you know legitimate reasons and i just you know i don't want to be there again
1: (laughs) yeah that doesn't Um, sound uh much fun
2: (laughs) i I mean sometimes you know there's there's some comfort in that steady paycheck and, and being on a big aircraft carrier if you will there's comfort in that but um I like the agility of, of being with a small company or, or owning my own business because we can react quicker, you know, and, and when you're talking about keeping, keeping your customers happy, then you need to have that agility, I think. And so that's probably where I sort of have an irk or irk factor with uh, the bigger com- companies because it just takes so long to get anything done.
1: Yeah, I, so. I mean, and I personally am not a huge fan of uh, – a lot of the corporations <laughs> they i mean mm-hmm. i feel like they do some pretty uh, disastrous uh I, I guess i mean i it's a slightly different but you know like the oil spills that are happening right now <laughs> it's like right and they just don't take any accountability for their actions and it's like wow you i i just can't help I'm just like don't you have kids like aren't you worried about your children and the future right it's just perplexing right. to me and it's just they it just seems yeah. like all they care about is more just what right. can, can we get? Which, right. And then, like, you absolutely. Know, and I remember, like, uh, in my old neighborhood in Chicago, there was a local department store that was like family owned, right. and it, and it was really great, and the customer service was great because people had, you know, they got uh, what do you call it when they get a percentage of what they sell, and they had an initiate, you know, they had, an, there was a reason for them to be work harder. <laughs> it's like now right. you go into a so department that- store and it's they you know of course they're rude cuz they're making no money they have some right. crappy job
2: right yeah and i think you know the pendulum is swinging um back to you know if you want to look back to the 80s or whatever you know maybe even some part of the 90s where it's like okay we're all on this this treadmill if you will and the money's flowing in and and you know we're fat and happier i guess and for, for some and 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 um you know I, I think that that's a very I look at aig and everything else that happened i mean the company that i ran and the 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 corporation i worked for for a short two years uh was directly impacted by everything that aig was doing and the banks and the you know it was all insurance related um the company that i was with and and that was very scary because you know the too big to fail concept is 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 dangerous and um you know i think that's probably another uh, irk factor for me is don 't think you 're too big to fail, <laughs> and, and we can 't put all of our eggs in one basket, and um, you know the more competition we have and the more diversity we have with maybe smaller businesses or mid sized businesses that are are directly impacted maybe a little bit more um, with some of these shifts and changes that happen in the world. Uh, and with the economy, with customers changing, that uh, if they feel it more, then, then they will also be more agile in and responding and, and not just sort of taking the, the bonus or the golden parachute and, and retiring on some island. So, um, I mean, I, I try not to get on that soapbox because I feel like, you know, as much as I had a lot of opportunities to. To learn when I when I worked for a big corporation, and, and I, I see some of the challenges that they face from a business perspective. Um, you know, I, I, I don't take that for granted, and I'm, I'm grateful for that experience to know what it's like <laughs> on the inside. To know I don't want to go back, which I'm very pleased with uh, being able to learn that. Um, but, you know, I think that, that every kind of business has its place. And, and I do think that we've seen a shift towards bigger corporations being Probably more vocal in terms of them trying to be more responsible most recently, and I mean not to pick on Walmart because it's an easy target, but oh, you know free. this is a lot of. <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot of what I put in my book. Is you know I talk about the big boxes and and uh, Walmart is Walmart's been studied so much that it's a great example of how concerning it is that such a big entity is controlling so much of the things, the products, the food source. Um, you know, the the percentage of retail uh, grocery sales that they represent alone in the U.S., it's one, it's all in one basket, and that's, that should be a huge concern for folks, and you know you 're seeing them now you 're seeing Walmart doing things that are more localized where they 're trying to bring in the local farmers to have produce in their grocery departments, and they 've just launched a major ad campaign where they're they 're going to double their advertising within the local markets, not just the national markets on their television advertising, and really start to um, be very direct in uh, cost comparison and price cutting. Um, so, you know, you see that start to build up again and, and, and I hate the fact that they use the local label all over some of their stuff lately. You know, it's, you're, you're still, you know, I wonder what Sam Walton would say today. I mean, he was a classic case study in in, at UCLA when I was going to these business courses and, and he didn't start off this big, (laughs) you know, he was a, a small guy starting a business and, you know, it grew into this empire. So, um. You know, I I just think people need to be more aware of it and just think about that before they vote with their dollars and and spend their money there.
1: That's a yeah. I'm a big advocate of voting with your dollar, and that's why. I mean, I personally try to shop at uh, farmers' markets, and which you know you can't get any more local <laughs> than ha- you know right. buying. And some of the markets, some of the vendors at at my local one is, uh, you know, there. It's like a, it's the farmers are there. It's like it's a. A group of five farmers at one table who they grow the stuff and they bring it and sell it and it's kind of, it's kind of a great experience and I personally Absolutely. feel better about spending my money that way, and uh, right. But is the word local when is is there sometimes a blurred, uh, say with some of these bigger stores? Do they blur the definition of that word a little bit? So you.
2: Absolutely. It's a marketing tool.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> you're saying that stuff about Walmart and all I'm thinking of is like they're only, the only reason they're making those shifts is because the trends are, are that way and people are, I think, I hope, people are becoming a little bit more conscious of what, what they consume and who makes what they consume because, uh, you know, we got them, them clowns, uh, Monsanto in the world, doing some really weird stuff right. with our food.
2: <laughs> right, right. You no, know, I, I think that the, the term local is really sort of, um, you know, it's like a label that's that's been slapped onto a lot of things. And, and you know, I think that, that if people people need to be uh, educated and understand that, that local is not just what's convenient, you know, like geographically convenient. Um, to me, the way I define it and how I've defined it in my book and with what I'm doing with my business is it really is, you can look at it through a few layers. It can be locally sourced goods. It can be um, locally owned. And, and basically what you want to keep in mind is if something is local, to me, that means that more of your dollars are going to stay in your community because it's locally owned and it's locally operated or it's being sourced from a local provider or producer so that, again, those, those dollars that you're spending are staying within your community and it's benefiting more people, rather than being sent out to the corporate headquarters, you know, located elsewhere outside of your your neighborhood. And to me, that's how I define local. Now, some people will still say, well, I'm, I'm 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 keeping local. You know, I'm I'm shopping at my Target down the street. You know, I'm I'm saving money on gas, and I'm not driving that far, so I'm not having a huge carbon footprint with driving across across town. But again, it's 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 the dollars. Um, and where they're going. I mean, that's really the the crux of it, and what we're going to do to turn the economy around. So, locals used everywhere, and I think people just need to um, what do you call it? Uh, I guess maybe trust and verify, <laughs> um, or or really yeah, make sure that that it's it's what it what they're portraying, because local can be a very powerful marketing tool and within the past 10 years i think more consumers have become more aware of it through as you say things like the the gmos and you know seeing what foods we're putting into our bodies and being more aware of it that way so it's kind of nice because people are getting involved and they're not just being passive about it they're they're at least starting starting to think about it a little bit more maybe even question well what is local you know
1: how now how do you how do you know that your store is uh Local. <laughs> I mean, I guess you could just go ask, right, and be like, hey, "Right? I don't know." Yeah,
2: you you could. I mean, and and that's where where I I why I developed the certified locally owned program because you know anybody can put any store owner or any business on their website can put up a a, a banner or a badge or something that says I'm local, and they might be right. They are in my neighborhood, so they are local to me. But, um, you know, the way that you can sell, certainly you can go in and ask questions. Um, you know, how long have you been in the, in, the, in the area? How long has your business been open? Um, but what we do is we try to delve deeper and give the businesses and give the consumers kind of that, that good, keeping, good housekeeping seal of approval that says an independent entity, meaning my company, actually has verified that the majority ownership is actually based within the area that they are not associated with a nationally recognized brand because, you know, that obviously gives franchises and the huge uh, chain uh, companies sort of an, a competitive edge from an advertising and marketing perspective. Some people may disagree with that, especially some franchise owners who are very good friends of mine because they invest thousands of dollars and maybe they don't get the support that they feel they need. But, you know, our focus is, if you don't have the benefit of a nationally recognized brand, if your majority of your ownership is based in the community and you're not part of a huge chain uh, and you're a legitimate business that's been around for a while, then to me you are definitely quali- you qualify for being certified locally owned. And having some way of knowing who's who I think is important because you're seeing bigger companies. Um, I think Jim Baree is one example of this where they've, they've, they're opening up like pop-up boutique shops because that's where consumers are... Um, they're, they're they're shifting back to that. Rather than going to your Macy's, uh, people want to go to places that are fun to, to hang out for a little while. So so even the big national stores are now, you know, sort of reverting to the smaller store model to make it feel more more boutique like. Yeah. So um, it's getting harder to tell. Um, That's interesting. Local I, didn't, not.
1: I didn't know that. And it's a, in the mall yeah. is a horrible experience. <laughs> I, oh, God, I know. Even Ugh. as a kid, when people were like, let's go hang out in the mall, I was just like, why? Like, what? I know. What, <laughs> it's the worst place on the world. It's like bad food, shitty stores, <laughs> people with big bad hair. Bad
2: lighting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and one of the things, like, I think of the big box stores, too, like, my my, my parents shopped at big box stores, like, like, uh, Sam's Club. We oh, had here. It, is, I wasn't yeah. sure
1: exactly what big box was. I had a, a sort of a vague idea, but it's,
2: Big box. It's like Home Depot, Target, Walmart, uh, Costco. I mean, like the the Uber markets. You know, they're they're sort of standalone stores. They're they're nationally if not globally known. Um, that's the big box store. Um, you know, you've also got some of the st- Pottery Barn, you know, Restoration Hardware. Those are big anchor stores, and those are those are pretty much big box. Um, but I remember going in shopping as a kid, and we'd buy. You know, you can buy everything from. These tires, the tuna fish at, at your, you know, Walmart or your, your Sam's Club, and Sam's Club is part of the Walmart company. But uh, it was just gross because you'd, you'd bring home like a sack of oranges or, or actual food to eat, and it just stunk. <laughs> it smelled awful. It smelled like rubber tires, and you just, you would, you could tell if somebody went to this, went there to shop because they would smell like it on their clothes when they left. It was just this weird. Odor, <laughs> big box odor that sort of, you know, permeates whatever you buy there. Yeah, I just,
1: you know, it, it just seems weird to me. It's like, oh, I'm going to buy food at a place where I can also buy a TV. It's just like
2: that's right, like such exactly.
1: a weird connect. Like, we're, I, I know some people are like, this is awesome. They have everything. It's like that just seems kind of alarming to me because it's like I don't want my oranges near appliances. <laughs>
2: Or, and you're going in, yeah, you're going in for, you know, your groceries. I'm like, well, sure, I, I, can, I can take this barbecue home. Why not? And, and they don't, they purposely don't put in directories or really, you know, very effective vibes on the aisles intentionally because, you know, they want people, and this is this is just smart marketing and research that they've done to run their business. They want people to meander through and pick up this impulse buy and this number 10 can of beans that you'll never finish throughout your entire lifetime, but a deal you got to get it right so it's there's a science to it all and and again that's where people need to be they need to be educated they need to be a little more aware and they, they need to take accountability for how they're spending their money and and not just to assume you're getting a good deal on you know since you're getting a good deal on the on the paper towels that you're going to get a great deal on those sneakers too i mean there's a whole science to it and you know it even goes into some of the um the drugstores you know, like CVS and, and Rite Aid and, and Walgreens, which are on every corner here. Uh, it seems. Um, you know, there's a the science to sort of coming in and lowballing the prices for a period of time when they first open their store. They cut out any of the other stores who may be selling those the, that merchandise, or certainly independent pharmacies. They they lowball, undercut, and then over time which consumers don't realize unless they're paying attention to their dollars, which they should be, that they slowly start raising the prices after they've come into an area and they've become the only place to go to. So, you that's, know, there are... <laughs>
1: it's just, that's evil. It's, <laughs> it's like, it's, because it's like you're killing another guy's business. So, you know.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, these are just the little things that I try to, to share with people. That Again, I mean, these are, these are businesses practices maybe not very ethical ones but you know it's, it's, it's a competitive world and that's the reality of it but if you are a smart consumer then you should be thinking about these things and, and again it just goes back to like we said voting with your dollars and where do you feel good spending your money and, and really getting in touch with that.
1: I prefer the old days of stores competing <laughs> with like hitting each other with baseball bats that's how they did it in Chicago in the 30s
2: <laughs> Actually,
1: actually, true. My grandfather, actually, the newspapers too were like they were like in gang warfare together in the thirties. The tri- wow! It, my grandfather uh, worked for uh, Colonel McCormick who owned the Tribune and did some of his wow. dirty work. That's how I, might that's how I know that that little factoid. That's, fact that's what's
2: just called that's called just being passionate about your business. That's all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, now, how is how is the big business? Because a lot of people would say like. Walmart and all that—they bring in jobs to you know a lot of they, they provide a lot of jobs. How does that? How are those big companies bad for the economy opposed to the small independent stores being good for the economy? Was that a was I did that make sense?
2: Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, that's a very common question. Um, and and what happens is a big a big uh, box store, say like Walmart or Target, will come into a city, and and there are. uh, basically uh, tax loopholes that their corp- their corporations, because of the way they're established and where they're set up, they can actually get uh, incentives that will give them a tax break for any of the improvements of the building or, or to go, go into a city and sort of set down their roots at that location. So there's an advantage that small businesses who are trying to open up, say, in, in, you know, open up a brand new store in in a city, the small businesses don't get the same sort of tax deductions and uh, loophole benefits that the big corporations do. Um, and that's one thing. And, and the other thing with regards to uh, employment and offering jobs and even wages is, you know, there's been studies done that actually show that uh, some of these big box stores move into an area and sure, it seems like they're going to provide lots of jobs. But for the most part, and certainly Walmart's been under heavy criticism, and Target to some extent as well, that they are known for hiring part-time employees or paying them under minimum wage. Um, you know, looking across their stores uh, across the U.S., and they've gotten a lot of heat for that. So they while pay... they may be,
1: I just, how do they pay under minimum wage?
2: No, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the, the answer to that. Um, and I think it has to do with keeping people at a certain uh, part-time status. Um, and I think that also, you know, they're not getting the uh, health benefits as well. So um, I, I think that that's uh, – there may be some other, other uh, breaks that they get based on their size for keeping their wages down that may – I mean, that seems like a, a, it would be a huge problem here in California, but maybe other states are less um, – are, are more lenient in that regard. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that particular question. I'm just – I know that I've seen that they've been – it's been proven in studies that they've been paying less than minimum wage. And I don't know if they're still doing that today. Maybe there's been a turnaround, but I know that historically they've sort of had this this challenge when they move into area that it, it kind of it detracts from, from certain jobs as well. So while you're 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 hiring, you know, a big group of people to work part time, maybe not get benefits, maybe having they're gonna have to find another job really to to make ends meet. You know, the numbers don't really trans translate into we're giving everybody these great, well-paying jobs with all these benefits that go along with it because they're keeping their retail employees at a part-time basis, which most retail businesses try to do um, just to keep their expenses down, of course. But it also, you know, jobs get displaced when a big company like that comes into an area. So the businesses that were there maybe can't make it anymore. They've got to start cutting their prices to be competitive with the big store that's moved in. Um, and then they find up they, they wind up having to close their own doors because they just can't compete anymore. And maybe those people are displaced out of jobs as well. So it kind of dri- it has this impact and has historically driving down the, the the wages and and driving down um, the employment numbers. So I think that they kind of cancel each other out. So this promise of tons of jobs with a big company coming into your town isn't necessarily true if you dig deeper and look at what it actually equates to sure there may be sure numbers but they may be all part-time people who still need more jobs to survive
1: yeah it seems like too there's like if there was a say an area of independent like stores and then it seems like other independent businesses would open up around that and like restaurants or something and because that's like you know a lot of people go shopping and they eat you go into like a, a lot of these dump rest uh stores (laughs) sell (laughs) they have like food counters and stuff too of which i would also i think kind of kills that little local business of instead of like going to a you know the local little corner burger stand or something you grab a shitty burger inside a walmart
2: Oh yeah, and I, I hear that. I hear people doing that all the time. I, I personally don't care for it. Again, it just it, it stinks. But no, <laughs> people actually plan their shopping trips at some of these places based on the free samples, and um, and certainly with Costco, I know that that people go there sometimes just for the hot dogs. So you know, <laughs> it does displace other other potential businesses that could benefit from their being there. And you know, just to back up a couple steps, you know, it, it, I think that. The key to any city and its success economically and and just creating a diversity of choice for the people who live there or who visit or who work there, you need to have a balance of the Walmarts, the Targets, the big box stores, the Pottery Barn, but you also need to sprinkle in the little guys because those anchor stores people love to go to and they want to have the choice to go there. They need to be there, but there needs to be as much focus on giving opportunities for the other businesses that can complement the experience of people going to a shopping area or going to a strip mall and offering that diversity of choice, and that's where the independents come in, in my opinion, rather than, you know, the same store that you can buy the same furniture at in 200 cities across the U.S., and everybody's got the same furniture in their homes now, which is disposable in two years, so... You know, it gives people the it gives businesses the opportunity when a store comes in, if the city is, and if the the landowners are actually open to bringing in those independents.
1: And now you were saying too about the big business, uh, like how Walmart and they all get uh, tax breaks and all that garbage. What what if what are are there benefits for like if you're that a certified locally owned store can get like to make their life easier?
2: You know, I wish I could say that we'll give you a tax break if you open up a new store, and boy, that would be great. That's, that's going to be a lot of work and lobbying on my part, but I like the idea. <laughs> um, we're not there yet, but uh, what we are doing is we're really trying to level the playing field in terms of promoting and marketing the indie, you know, the local indie businesses. And because they don't have the benefit of perhaps a, a nationally recognized brand and, and, and maybe people forget that they're there, um, you know, people don't realize how many local stores are around them because we pass by them and we're just not paying attention. So we give them that exposure. And so one of the things we do is we, we really try to promote them uh, online. And, and the reason why is obviously the more places that your name or your brand or business appears online, the more times you're going to come up with people – Search for something that's related to what you do or sell. So we give that to them. And it's also sort of grassroots effort as well so that when people walk by a physical store or they visit a website that has the certified locally owned designation, it's going to make them think twice about, you know, maybe I'll buy it from this place because they've got this designation. And, hey, look, look at that. It's making me think without really knowing that I should be considering maybe supporting my neighbors or this person who I know is actually that been, been certified that they are a local. Um, so it sort of, it, it, it augments the whole shop local movement or, or lo, buy local first movement um, without really having to, to say it. It's, it's, it's a reminder of that. So that's what we're trying to do. And, and, and studies have shown there's been an increase in sales in, in certain cities that have the shop local initiatives. But you know a lot of times it's built around um, the holidays in December or, you know, big shopping seasons, which makes sense, but I think that there needs to be a consistent reminder throughout the entire year. We need to make it easy for people to know who their local businesses are and, and where to find them. So that's the benefit that we're providing through the Certified Locally Owned Program.
1: It seems it's, it seems aggravating to me that our government doesn't give the small business guy more tax breaks because it's like Walmart doesn't need – they they could probably give stuff away free for a year and they still would be filthy rich. It's like, it's like they make right. so much money. It's like, it it's bothering right. it to me how, how much our government sides with uh, the corporations all the time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I agree. And it is very frustrating. And, and I think at times it kind of feels like you, you kind of throw your hands up because it's so pervasive from the top down. And even if you want to talk about, you know how the political system is structured and how things get done. You know, from the, at the local level all the way up to the White House, and you know it's it's very frustrating. And it goes back to sort of that that corporation. You know, the big uh, uh, the big aircraft carrier that takes so long to make that turn. <laughs> you know, but it, but it starts with I think people really at the community level getting involved and 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 saying something and doing something about it. I mean, we can't have you know, complacent people in our society anymore. I mean, there, you've got to step up and, and try to make a change and I, and I think be vocal. And, you know, if you want to go out and, and become the activist and, and, and you know, wave the flag or whatever, fine. But I think that, that we need to start holding all of the people who are making these decisions accountable. And, and, and I know it's a hard, a hard road to, to sort of pave, but you can't just sit back and just things, you know, just keep moving along in the status quo way that they have for so long because look at where we're at today. And you've got people from our state going to talk to folks in China, which I think is great because they're going to work on initiatives like, you know, keeping the, the, the air clean and, and working on, you know, some effective plans we've had here and adapting that to China and cut down the smog so people don't have to wear masks on the street. But we also know that We're hoping to get the Chinese to invest in a rail system that could potentially be driving right through all of our farmland in this state. And agriculture is such a huge economic force in California. So it's like, let's think long term, you know, and not just tick the box on what I need to get done in my political office and move on. yeah, I just had that conversation with somebody today. so riled up from it. Like, I, 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 ah, did, I didn't know
1: about that. Uh, it would be like a speed train, one of them speed train guys.
2: Yeah, yeah, from like Bakersfield to San Diego or something. I, I, it's it's they've got they've got like fifteen billion dollars of the eighty some odd billion dollar budget. So that it looks like they're trying to get Chinese interests um, to help us make it happen, so that we'll have this fabulous train that will get us. Up and down the state. Um, um, why
1: do we have to bring China into this to build our train?
2: Because we have no money and we'll be indebted to them for years to come. <laughs>
1: we already are.
2: <laughs> I know. We're not going to use our our you know our our cars that are built here in the USA to put on those tracks. They're coming over from China. So
1: it's anyway. A, I'm, I, because it is it, there is that's another like point. you's like. That would be a great thing for our economy if if we, there was ways that we could take care of that train ourselves. If that, right. you know, it's just uh, exactly. I mean, because uh, due to sending so much manufacturing over there, uh, right? I mean, that's really. I mean, that would be great if we could pull back more manufacturing in our Even country. Here,
2: yes, it's, create an industry if we have to. I mean, yeah. I mean, these projects are great opportunities to do that. Um. You know, and and I know that, yeah. I, I just I I think you just need to, as an individual, we just need to keep banging on the drum, you know, and and try to make the little choices that we can, in our own world. And if we want to take it beyond that and spread it to others and and, and incite people or inspire people to do more than that and go beyond, then that's that's the role that we need to play.
1: Yeah, it seems better. Uh, it's I don't know if it's because I we live in California, so I think people tend to be a little bit more. Well, I think everybody in California has a little bit of dirty hippie in them, whether they want to admit it or not.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. You know, I I try to fight it, and and I I, I still have corporate suits hanging up in my closet. So, but I still got the flip flops and the the Levi shorts and you know, on the other side. So you try to balance it out.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've become I like I as a kid, you know, kind of came through the punk era, so it was like. Uh, there was a period where I was just like, you know, fuck hippies. <laughs> like, fuck those right, people. But then, right. it's like the last few years, I'm like, you've become a hippie because it's like every <laughs> every soap in my house is environmentally <laughs> conscious. Like, I'm like, <laughs> I shop at farmers. It
2: happened. And... You're there, Matt. Welcome.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I actually, uh, you know, I've ended up having a lot of uh, old 60s radicals on my show. So it's like, I've become a real, but you know, a lot of great things happened in that decade. I think we, I think people sort of uh turned against the 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 yuppieization of those right. things. But now what was there like a a solid one event that sort of inspired you to write this book or or was it a series of It's, kind uh, of
2: a, it's a combination of personal experiences for me. I you know, I I am a Southern California native and, and I was born and raised here in the South Bay. Um, and so I've gone to school here. I've lived here my whole life. Now, I love to travel, but I've always lived here, and I've been here in Redondo Beach um, for over 15 years. And so, you know, I, I take pride in it, and, and the fact that I spent so many years sort of doing the the hustle, you know, driving from my box at home to my box at work for, you know, so many years and spending at least two hours on the road each day that, you know, I didn't really have my eyes open to why, you know, the, the community that I chose to live in is so so great, sort of taking that for granted, I guess, a little bit, and, you know, certainly one of the things that, that happened is, you know, you start seeing businesses close their doors, and there's one particular place that is in um, a shopping area called Riviera Village here in Redonda Beach, and it's really nice. I mean, it's feels like you're in the French Riviera. It's just a great little cluster of uh, small mom-and-pop uh, locally owned businesses. And you can just go down there and walk and spend the day and eat and do what you, what you want to do. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And so one of these places, after 15 years, was, was on the brink of closing their doors. And so they had been going out a business sale and everybody was there crying. And it was just horrible. And I thought, where am I going to go buy something for my mother? You know, they always had something for my mom. <laughs> I'm (laughs) Scrown! So, and and something always unique. And they're all about using local artists and and selling what the local artists produce, and and also very eco conscious, and and materials are all, you know, earth friendly. So, to see them after 15 years, I mean, that's a haul, and they're dedicated, uh, obviously. And and to hear that they were going to close their doors just really broke my heart. So, they started closing, you know, selling things, everything's got to go. And they actually had this, this city here that I live in and love. All the people sort of came about and helped bring them back. People started buying stuff and helping them bring, get back on their feet. And they just celebrated their 19th year anniversary uh, just last month. So the people here brought that business back to life.
0: That's and when great. I
2: saw that, I thought, this is incredible. And you know what? This could be any store in any town, anywhere. And if they can do that, then that's a, you know that's so inspiring, and you know going into business for myself and and dealing with you know other small business owners and entrepreneurs, that I try to do as much business with as I can and give them business. You know I realize it's it's really tough, and I'm living and working in my town, and I want to try to preserve it and protect it and keep it a nice place for people to come visit or live. And so that's sort of the combination of things, and of course, wine had something to do with it too.
1: <laughs> no, I was going to say uh, because you are a wine aficionado, or is that just a fancy way of saying I am a classy drinker, classy drunk? Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like wine, and there is there is there is there is definitely an air of sophistication if you are into wine. Uh, but at the end of the day, you are still getting schnockered. Sh- sh- <laughs> Or at least I am. <laughs>
2: um, you know, it is a fancy term. I think it's you know it's a fancy term or another way of saying uh, you know cork dork, um, oh, like- or a wine wonk. I like wine wonk because you know it really is. I think if, if you want to call yourself an aficionado, then it means that you've you've put some time into not only um, consuming and enjoying and tasting, but certainly uh, learning about it and. Um, so you know that is one of my my other passions and and so I've I've spent a considerable considerable amount of time uh, enjoying it <laughs> and certainly certainly in the business world you know, I, I like to say that you know in the business world you get a lot of a lot of uh, business done over wine and often you know a great meal that goes along with that so you know um, I think the aficionado implies that maybe there's been somebody who's gotten a little more geeky about it and uh, studied it so that they may. You know, I really have to temper it because I can talk to people about wine, and then it's like, okay, you need to tone it down because you're just you're off in another world and you're getting excited about the littlest things. And it's like, oh god, my wine geek is showing. Okay, pack it up. <laughs> the
1: sad thing is is that wine aficionados never end up on bar tops like uh, dancing, and that's real sad. <laughs> well, yeah. They always keep their they always keep their cool, and it's like uh, you know, it's not. No, like what was just out of curiosity like was there ever like some kind of like crazy super exotic rare bottle of wine that you had like where it was like this is from 1682 if that's even possible
2: <laughs> yeah i know i probably wouldn't drink it if it was that old but um depending on i mean if certainly if it was like a port maybe but <laughs> um gosh you know I, I haven't really i haven't had one that just sort of sticks in my brain there's been so many that that it's just a unique experience each time you have a bottle of wine, and especially with your, when you're eating, eating food. Um, you know, certainly I've had some fantastic bottles from places in Napa. Um, certainly Chateau Montalena is one, uh, Opus, you know, and those I haven't personally paid for because they're out of my budget. But,
1: <laughs> what, but what, um, what is a bottle of Is it, Is that like something that's like a $700 bottle of wine or something?
2: Yeah, it, it can it range in that, in that price range. Uh, Opus is pretty, pretty expensive. But, you know, they don't have to be. I mean, my whole thing, like with, I think with anything in life, is if you really enjoy it, then you'll enjoy it more when you learn about it. And it doesn't have to be intimidating. So even though, you know, aficionado or wine snob, whatever, you know, I want to try to take that out of it. You know, it's kind of fun to have that air about it, depending on what, what sort of company you're with. Um, and and I go to a wine conference every year, and and for three days straight, we're tasting wine from eight in the morning till five o'clock at night, and then there's dinner with more wine. And it's like, okay, I love you wine, but uh, I need a beer.
1: Yeah, I was also <laughs> going to say they call the, they call that a bender, by the way.
2: <laughs> but and that's the thing. I mean, when you're when you're in that environment, like you said, the, the aficionados and people not dancing on the bars, because. When people say you're so lucky to go to these conferences. I'm like, you don't understand. We taste and we spit. All, we are spitting wine all day. And some of these wines are so amazing from, from places across the world that I will never probably get to, to go, hopefully someday. But these these wines are coming in from everywhere. And we're there as wine educators to taste them and to really help our own palate get its own exercise and, and, and make sure that we're working on that aspect of our senses, but we're not drinking it. We're not consuming it. So it's like being teased for three days. (laughs) Oh, this is good. Got to spit it because otherwise with, you know, a day like that, you're toast. You know, you're toast after maybe your first two wineries when you go wine tasting if you're not dumping and spitting. So there's a whole ugly dumping, spitting side to wine tasting and being a wine, you know, expert or whatever you want to call yourself. That is not that glamorous, and it's not all that um, involved in actually consuming. Plus, spitting.
1: <laughs> who, who, what part of the world is making the best wine right now? Is that a, is that a uh, possible question?
2: Well, you know, I think I think France has kind of been hit hard. I think I think France is maybe one that's not doing as well as it has historically. I mean, France is always going to have a top um, top spot. Um,
1: what happened with France?
2: Well, I I think that there's been a lot of uh, change in the wine world in terms of, you know, having competition from, um, you know, California, Um, certainly uh, other uh, countries in South America like Chile, Argentina, um, they've been making some fantastic wines over the past. Oh gosh, probably five to ten years now, and um, you know the fact that that France and what they call the old world countries—France, Italy, Spain—anybody really in Europe—they use still follow all of the old ways of you know growing the grapes and producing the wine and and maybe not using all the, the you know the fancy. Chemicals and fertilizers and things like that. I mean, they're tr- they're traditionalists in, in, in most of the most cases, and they have built their you know their evaluation system and how they rate their wines based on that tradition. But the New World wines, like us folks in California and in the U.S. and in South America, even um, in uh, uh, South Africa and Australia, those wines are a New World because they they're sort of non traditionalists Um, and they are doing more creative and innovative things in terms of their production, and they're not bound to the traditional rules. So you just think of, you know, Europe sort of has that history. You know, they have a bunch of rules that came up in a prior time, which worked at the time, but they're still following some of those rules. Well, that's what the winemakers are still doing to this day, still producing great quality products, but the New World wines are having a little more flexibility and freedom. They're a little more indie. They can push the envelope and not be sort of, you know, bound by the old traditional ways of making wine and still making some fantastic products that are being highly competitive with, with European wines. So, you know, you, th- that's just the pendulum shift that, that we're seeing right now. Um, you know, my favorites are, come from uh, Chile and Argentina. I still love Napa. Um, you know, it, it just, when I, when I pick a wine, I really base it on kind of my mood <laughs> and um, also what I'm eating because I really do feel that wine is, is like a spice for food, and, and it just it changes it. So, you know, for those who just want to pound, you know, a glass or two or more, um, they may not enjoy it as much or appreciate it as much as, as would have habit with a really nice meal. Um, it actually changes the flavor of the wine, and it actually helps enhance the flavor of your meal.
1: Do you, do you, I kind of think uh, people should rate Francis Ford Coppola's wines by his movies. Like his Pinot Noir would be sort of, uh, <laughs> would be Dracula. It <laughs> wasn't that good. <laughs> yes. And then maybe yes. it's Merlot is, uh, you know, the conversation.
2: <laughs> I've actually
1: had his Pinot Noir and it was pretty terrible.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and just because it's a big... Well-known name doesn't mean it's going to be that great, and and some of the big producers, you know, they sell an okay product, and it's fine. You can get it at your grocery store, and and it's relatively uh, economical or cheap. But uh, you know, I mean, it, you you have to just go out and try stuff. You know, I I encourage people to try to go to. Like you say, you know, a little wine shop in your neighborhood. That's that's the best thing to do. Um, you know, places that that actually specialize in wine or fantastic wineless restaurants. Go in for a glass or you try a flight. You know, um, that's the best way to do it without spending a bundle. You know, buying a bunch of different wines just just for fun uh, to taste. But that's good too. <laughs> oh,
1: no, no, I'm a big fan. I had a friend who worked for Martin Short briefly, and Martin Short's a like a big wine dude. And he, my friend had like one of them like the like a thousand dollar bottle of wine yeah and he said it yeah. was he was like you don't know wine until you taste he's like i've never t- tasted anything he was like he was like it was dr- like drinking a cloud is how he, he. <laughs> and i i've you know i I, d- I hope someday i am in the uh financial area to p- spend a thousand dollars on a bottle of wine <laughs>
2: Now the the interesting thing would be to know if he was told how much that bottle of wine cost before he tried it.
1: Oh, I you know yeah. I don't I don't know I know Martin Short is a big wine guy. Uh, right,
2: so you expect him to serve something good. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I but I mean I had Don Perignon once and I was like okay like it, that didn't like uh, kick me in the teeth or anything. Right. That was yeah. Uh,
2: I mean, and, and, and there are good years and, and not so good years either. So, you know, imagine if you dropped a grand on that bottle of wine and it just didn't age the way you thought it would. Or What usually happens is you buy several bottles of, of that same vintage, that same year of, of wine, the same wine, and usually the the, the collectors will, will taste it at different periods while it's aging. So let's say, you know, they taste the year 3 or year 5 up to year 10 or however long they age it, and they can see how it's developing. So it's not just that $1,000 bottle. Oftentimes, if they're going to spend that kind of money, they're buying several bottles just to see how it ages. So it can be an expensive proposition. (laughs) (laughs) But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be.
1: um, I just wanted to go back to the shop locally thing real quick because uh, there was something I thought of when you were talking about, which I thought was great, how everybody rallied together and saved that store. And there was part of me that was wondering... Uh, not part of me. All of me was wondering. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't even know what that meant. Uh, but like, uh, there was there. It seems to me that perhaps we, as a society, has lost a little sense of community. Uh, like, yes. I mean, I think like like people like my parents' generation. They there was more like getting together and doing you know whatever like bowling or things. Right. And it, that doesn't seem to exist anymore. It seems like we've become more of a. I don't know. Maybe a. Rec- I don't know, recluse. Everyone's more like, well, I'll just stay in my house type of thing. And I'm wondering if that, to a degree, is uh, part of of the problem, if that makes
2: sense. I absolutely think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, the thing that's funny is, you know, we talk about Shop Local and everything that we've discussed. And if you were to tell my great-grandparents that, they'd be like, okay, well, what's so new about this? You know, why, why is this sort of novel? Or why are you guys rediscovering this? It's always been this way, you know. And they grew up on a farm in, in North Dakota. So, you know, it's, um, it's kind of funny that we're, we're having to... Um, not force ourselves, but we're, we're we're thinking about going back to these these kinds of, of ways because we're we're so desperate and craving them. We're on our devices all the time. We're not having a conversation. We're texting people that we may even be sitting at the same damn table with at dinner. <laughs> I've done <laughs> You've seen that and you've done that. So so you know it's 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 we are coming becoming more isolated even though we can communicate with the world through Facebook or other things. And you know those pla- those things have a place in our, our our life, and and they can be powerful and and fun. And however, we need to not ignore the the sort of the visceral, tactile, face to face, being able to sort of pick up on people when you're just when you're talking to them and, and interacting with them. And and you know one of the things that really stuck out to me in going back to the fact that we're sort of isolated, I was reminded when when I was. Writing this book, one of the things that inspired me was through the travel guides that I did in in wine country. I got to sit down and talk to some really great winemakers and even small business owners. And it's such a tight knit community when you think about, I mean, Napa's huge and Sonoma's pretty big too, but even some of those, you know, the central coast of California, even Temecula Valley here in Southern California. Wine country is, you know, dependent. It's a little ecosystem. And the businesses there are dependent upon each other. And I learned that everybody in these communities, even with the big conglomerate corporations, people were still there to help each other out and really protect the business. And there was one winemaker I met in in Oregon. And Oregon has fantastic Pinot Noir. So if you haven't had Oregon wines or you haven't been to Oregon, you've got to go to Oregon wine country. Um, it's It's my favorite area, I think, in terms of wine country. It's not as built up yet as Napa, but it's high quality stuff. It's great people. It's green, a <laughs> uh, little hippie-ish, going back to our hippie thing. But, but the winemaker said basically this mantra that's really stuck with me throughout the whole process of researching and writing this book, I carry it with me today. And that is, if our neighbors fail, then we fail. And he talked about how when it's harvest season, you've got to get those grapes off the vines. That's a critical moment for everybody. And so if our neighbor's tractor breaks down, and technically we're a competitor because we're making wine just like they are, we're sending our tractor over there and even our people to go help them pick those grapes because we know if they fail or don't succeed, then then that's going to affect us too. And it was that whole community of of competitors essentially that really sort of opened my eyes to, wow, you know, you could take these same principles and apply it to what we're experiencing with the economy, the fact that people are starting up their own businesses because they can't find jobs. I mean, it all sort of comes full circle. And it really reinforces what we were talking about in terms of having that connection one-on-one with people and getting back to getting involved in the community and getting out in your community and actually meeting your neighbors. You know, yeah, I was, Maybe you don't know the neighbor that was trying to get his package delivered
1: <laughs> next door, but you do now. <laughs> you know, I don't know why I did. I don't know if you heard that, uh, but I the guy asked me if I knew the neighbor, and I for some reason I said no, and I was like totally do. I just it just I think I was just so irritated because I was trying to start our interview, and I was just like, I, I just <laughs> was like, really more fucking problems interrupting us with this thing. <laughs> but uh, in to to wrap up, uh, just a couple more things. Uh, what what are Tips you have for people to so they can be more supportive of local businesses. What 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 can we do? What can I do to be more active? And things to look for. Sure.
2: Um, well, I think that that what you can do if you really want to make a difference. I, I think first of all, obviously, you, need, you you just need to be more aware. I, I think that that. Um, Really paying attention to the businesses in your community and, you know, getting out and if you can interact with your neighbors a little bit more, then maybe you find out a couple more recommendations. But I suggest that people do something called the shop local loop. And that's really getting on your bike or going for a walk or getting in the car and maybe doing a couple-mile loop around your house. And actually, you know, Saturday, Sunday morning and just pay attention to what's there, that maybe you drive by all the time and you just don't you blocked out of your vision because it's just noise along the side of the road. So sort of recognize that. But I think that you can start by focusing on just one thing. If you really feel good about or want to feel good about where you spend your money, maybe you think about eating at the local restaurant rather than going to the TGI Fridays. You know, I'm sure we all have our favorite little local place. And try going to them more, you know, or maybe just once a month. You know, you make a commitment to going out once a month, so you can, you know, have a good time. and go to the local place, or certainly farmers' markets, I think are excellent. Um, and and you know, even the things for your home or your car repairs, you know, or even your your taxes. You know, people are going to the big, you know, national chain, but there are you know CPAs in your neighborhood that will do a, I think personally, a much better job because they're going to get to know you your financial situation and your business situation, um, but pick one thing, just one thing. And then it's just being more mindful about it. You know, I think it's, it's don't assume that everything is local just because they say they are. Um, get, to, get to know that a little bit more. And, and I think it's just being aware, focus on one thing. And just before you buy something, just think, ask yourself, is it local? Can, where can I get this locally? And, and I think, you know, the, the message to sort of hammer home about this is, you know, think about the one place in your neighborhood that you would miss if it were gone. You know, that's what keeps me going. I go back to that store that almost closed its doors, and I keep thinking, well, what what, what place would I really miss if it were gone? And maybe I should go pay them a visit because it's been a while.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm I, i I'm very fortunate. I just had a local grocery store open up. Like, some guy in his 20s open up like an...
2: That's great.
1: Yeah, and it's like, it's very, it's very small, but it's all very organic. But it's like, I would rather go to him than Whole Foods because it's like, and I've, ever, right. and I've noticed like every time I go in there, there's more and more people because I do think, uh, especially in this time, I think people sort of are rooting more for like underdogs like that. And it's like, why wouldn't you want that guy to succeed?
2: Right. I mean, and that's where there's sort of a beauty to all this, even though everybody's, you know, nervous about the economy and and, and you know, trying to make a living I think that it's, it's this is also creating opportunities and for those who are strong enough and brave enough or crazy or risky enough however you want to read it to, to go for it it's, it's really creating a, a great opportunity for the underdog or the indie businesses to, to make a go at it and I think you know the timing is the timing is great so that encourages me and, and just creative you know coming up with really creative uh, ways of, of putting new business ideas out there and, and filling a niche that you know is right down the street. You don't. You may not have to get in your car to go see that guy. So um, you know, it's great. It's it's it's. There are opportunities out there. Uh,
1: and just as to to wrap up, what uh, are you you're because uh, you you have those fancy books. I'd like you if you could to plug your books and any websites people could. Uh, uh, and your and your Twitter. I believe you're on the Twitter. Are you not?
2: You know, I I, I am, but I, I prefer sort of doing the Facebook thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or the Facebook.
2: I try to do the Twitter, but I, I prefer the Facebook. Um, yeah, I mean, Shop Local is the name of the book. Um, and, and all of my books you can actually find um, at your local bookseller or your online retailer, such as IndieBound and I, or Powell's. I love Powell's. I know they're based up north. I,
1: I love That's it. a great business. Oregon is, such, um, is a great State, by the way, and so is Portland. is a great city.
2: Definitely, definitely. So they can find me. I mean, it's they're they're all out there, and, and this includes the travel guides and um, and the Shop Local book. As far as contacting me, um, I am on Facebook, but they could probably just best reach me through the ShopLocal.us site or uh, CertifiedLocallyOwned.com, and just click on the contact us link and and send me an email, and that will come right through.
1: Great, thank you very much, Heidi. Sure, my
2: pleasure.
1: Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed this episode, or if you please uh, explore the others, Uh, to a lot of very interesting people who affect the world in a positive manner, and that's a good thing. Uh, If you really like the show, you can donate some money, which I will use to shop locally around my neighborhood and mostly locally in a pub. Uh, but we do, Dustin Marshall and I, the fine man who helps me uh, put this show together, we uh, we sacrifice our lives greatly to do these shows, so a little help would be cool. So we can maybe eat a cheeseburger, veggie burger for Dust, yeah, Dustin there. He's a vegetarian. Uh, if you can't afford to donate, uh, go through the Amazon link there and uh, purchase some stuff. I get a kickback of that, get, uh, which goes against shopping locally. But you can find independent salespeople on there who have their own stores. Just saying, uh, if uh, please uh, explore the other shows there on feralaudio.com, and follow me on Twitter, Matt_Dewire at the Twitters there, and I will update you when new shows are coming, which are every week at Wednesday. So please, I hope you enjoyed your show. I hope you're having a good day. And by the best, will do the people and do the
0: The United States government It is the mission of the National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. Oh, yeah. the NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA.
2: Now on feralaudio.com.